Today, I want to thank Dr. Jeff Silverstein for coming in uh, and virtually to give a talk on compassion and healthcare. Uh, for a little bit of background, Jeff did his um, medical residencies and fellowship alongside me for multiple years at Maryland, um, including uh, residencies in emergency medicine, and internal medicine, and then critical care fellowship. And since then, his basically continued to excel at wherever he's gone um, from the standpoint of uh, clinical excellence, administrative um, uh, growth, and um, eventually landing, that all eventually landed at uh, uh, Northwell Health in Long Island, largely driven by a, a lecture that he presented on Maryland Critical Care Project. And so this uh, talk today is um, just a small token of his larger payment that he uh, owes the fellowship and, and all of our educational efforts that go out to, uh, to the com medical community at large. So thank you, Jeff, for the small repayment. And, um, <laughs> and uh, no, he's, he's really an excellent person to speak on um, compassionate healthcare and among various other things. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And, uh, Thanks everybody for joining. I think that uh, when I was a critical care fellow, um, uh, this was not something that we really spoke very much about. And ultimately, uh, I was much more interested in things like ECMO and extracorporeal removal of CO2 and things of that nature. So I really want to thank the leadership here for uh, allowing me to speak to you about something that I find to be uh, really important and I've become very passionate about. So um, Let's see if I can, all right. Are you, are you seeing my slide? Yes. Okay. So uh, all of us uh, got into healthcare by going through medical school and looking somewhat like this individual here. Um, uh, it, it was not an easy road that we had to take. And we eventually became physicians and uh, or ACPs or whomever else might be kind of joining us. But I think that, you know, it's a really long road and uh, it, it would behoove us sometimes to actually think about who we were back then, why we got into this in the first place and who we want to be today. Um, I think that when we think about critical care specifically, but really all health care, there's, there's a lot of suffering. And um, when I was training, uh, th th there was some thought around the idea of the fact that there's so much suffering, we really need to wall ourselves off. We really need to um, not feel the suffering of others because every room there's suffering. Every room people are on mechanical ventilation, they're on pressors, they're in the process of dying, they might be getting better. But even as they're getting better, they're in a lot of pain and agony and there's a lot of suffering. And so... Um, we were really under the impression, or I was back then, that uh, if I were to feel with my patients and be with my patients and families, then I would go home and I would kick the dog afterward, that I would just not be able to cope with the amount of pain that was present. And I'm not sure if, if, if you guys can relate with that. I would love this to be more of a conversation. So um, feel free to kind of jump in and raise your hand and ask questions and whatever. Uh, and, and contribute because this is really more of a kind of a, a back and forth rather than me talking at you. But um, 
I, I've recently, over the last couple of years, I, 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 I took a role as a medical director and uh, in Northwell, that's a chief medical officer. And um, really was kind of charged in thinking, how can we reduce and mitigate physician and provider burnout? Really augment and focus on patient safety and improve patient satisfaction all at the same time. Um, what's the secret sauce to that? And uh, Steve Treziak uh, wrote this book. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with it. Uh, he also has given a few TED Talks on it, and he's written a second book. And this really spoke to me. So he also did EMIM Critical Care, uh, and uh, he was a few years ahead of me and Mike, and uh, became passionate about compassion and kind of nerded out on it and really looked at the science and the data behind the provision and the cultivation of compassion in our everyday practice and what that does. And so I would encourage you to uh, pick up this book or at least look at this uh, TED talk to kind of get a little bit more, uh, uh, more information about what his perspective is. And I'll, share you, I'll obviously share with you mine. Um, if you look at this, uh, this was just published this year, and this is the number of articles that you see. There's clearly a direction here um, of uh, people that are focusing on the provision of compassion. And this isn't just in the nursing realm. This is in the, in the physician realm as well, I'm, I'm happy to say. Nurses have been looking up at this for a number of years, and there's a lot more literature on the nursing side than on the physician side. But what I can tell you is, is that uh, clearly compassion does uh, um, a variety of things that I hope to share a couple of those things with you today, um, and actually to maybe even define compassion. Compassion versus empathy. So uh, as, as I was telling you before, my concern and the concern of many is that if I sit with my patients and suffer with my patients, then I'm going to go home and kick the dog. I'm going to be empty. I'm going to have compassion fatigue. And what I would, what I would uh, uh, submit to you is that I don't think that there's such a thing as compassion fatigue. I do think there's an element of empathy fatigue, and there is a difference. And so empathy uh, implies that I can feel what you are feeling. I understand what it is that you're feeling, at least somewhat. So I, so, um, I, I understand it intellectually, and I may actually internalize it a little bit. Compassion, on the other hand, presupposes that ability to understand what somebody else is feeling and goes a step forward and to say that not only do I understand that, but I'm also with you. And I also want to somehow impact your suffering as a result. And so empathy is required, but it's not the only thing that you need. Um, what you'll see uh, if, you, if you dive into some of the literature is that compassion has psychological health benefits for the patient and for us. Um, I'm not sure if, uh, uh, if you guys have gotten thank you notes from your patients yet. Uh, um, I am fortunate to be in a position as, as the medical director to get notes all the time from patients and families throughout the building. And I can tell you that I've never once seen a note saying, I'm so grateful to Dr. Smith who chose Piptazo over cefepine or who chose phenylephrine over norepinephrine 
or who chose a PEEP strategy that was high rather than low. Never seen that, not once. But I have seen a lot of letters that have really focused on Dr. Smith took the time and really held my hand through this. And I can't tell you how many letters I've gotten like that, but not one letter about antibiotic choice or oppressor choice. Uh, what's interesting also, and there's evidence to support this, is that if the patient and family feel as though their provider, physician and ACP, promote and cultivate compassion and, and act in that fashion toward them, their self-care and their compliance with your plan actually improves. Um, as such, it drives healthcare quality and actually can reduce costs. And actually that's where it becomes a win-win-win because then physicians feel better. At the end of the day, they feel more full. They feel like they wanna to come to work the next day. And hospitals do better because I'm charged to increase my CMS stars rating and uh, decrease readmissions. And by the way, you're, you're, you're gonna get readmitted fewer times if I care enough that I'm actually making sure that your discharge instructions are, are copacetic, if I'm actually calling your provider on the outside to make sure that you're landing softly. So a lot of these things dovetail, which is why this is becoming more and more evident that uh, we need to be on top of this. And the other thing that I would just say is that our healthcare system, I think that everybody would agree, is dramatically broken. I mean, we're sitting there, we're feeding the beast, we're feeding the, the, the computer, the electronic medical record, and we're driven away from the bedside. And we have all of these clicks and all of these, uh, all of these required elements within the EMR. And it takes us away from our patients and their families. And I think for most of us, we got into this not to feed the beast, but rather to be with our patients and families. And so this becomes a win-win-win. Um, interestingly, uh, there are different brain centers, and, and I hopefully, I, I, I didn't put the, the, uh, the, the journal article up there, but this is all within Compassionomics, this particular slide, uh, um, this study, which actually uh, had a functional MRI and said that Empathy uh, is really good at, at lighting up the pain centers, but compassion actually lights up a reward uh, pathway. And so the motivation to alleviate one's suffering is actually something that lights up a different pathway, which is why it's qualitatively different than just feeling somebody's pain, which is why, you know, from a physiologic perspective, I think that uh, those of us who have looked at this really feel strongly that uh, there's no such thing really as, a, as compassion fatigue, but there clearly is an element of, of empathy fatigue. Um, what a big thing this has been over the last two and a half years, burnout. I mean, uh, all of us have experienced elements of burnout. Um, again, uh, particularly in, in the huge COVID waves, what you were seeing was a lot less interaction with, patient, with, with patients and families because you were going in there, you were intubating them, and that you were FaceTiming potentially with families. Um, it was really a tragic scenario, which uh, um, was really tough for a lot of us. Um, uh, there is clear evidence that the cultivation and provision of compassion uh, within ourselves uh, not only can 
alleviate the symptoms and signs of burnout, but actually can mitigate and prevent burnout and is a resiliency technique for us. So um, uh, those of us who uh, are talking more, more and more about physician wellness, they say, well, just go meditate and, uh, and practice yoga and you'll be good. Um, and actually, I did not get into medicine to meditate and to perform yoga, although I'm not I'm not dissing those strategies. I think that there are, there are elements of, of uh, great things to both of those. I got into medicine to really be with patients. And so um, the best way to uh, mitigate and, uh, and, and alleviate com- uh, uh, the burnout is to cultivate and actually lean into compassion. I don't have to tell you that healthcare is a calling. Um, uh, if you wanted to do something else, there are plenty of easier things to do that, that, that you probably make more money. Um, compassion is something that we need to look back to, which is why I started with the idea of why we all, we, we all went into this in the first place. And it's something that um, we can't fake. So just because I'm going to give you a few tricks in, in the next few minutes about uh, how to think about this and actually operationalize it in your day-to-day practice. It doesn't necessarily mean that you can just read a script, be good at it, and move on. It's something that you actually have to feel. And so I would encourage everybody on this call to really think about that and then to think about their next clinical shift, their next clinical encounter, and see what they can do to cultivate and just provide even a touch of compassion. Uh, it's really interesting. I, I spoke with my chief nursing officer earlier today who was actually hospitalized this week and was talking specifically about the fact that uh, the, the, the dietary aide who came in uh, provided some compassion to her. And she was like, you know, uh, it, it really made me think about all of us in healthcare and how we can do just a little bit better in terms of understanding what it's like to be in the bed uh, because it ain't easy. So are we good at it? Do we provide compassionate care? Um, not so much. Uh, it's, it's hard for us to do. And what I can say is, um, even though this is kind of a passion of mine and something that I really focus on, there are still times that I will catch myself in my interactions with patients to say, whoa, I've actually just been all business and I need to actually go back in there and uh, drop a little compassion bomb on them because uh, we get very busy and, and we're getting torn in 13 different pieces uh, of this rapid response and that code and this family member. And so this is something that we have to be intentional about. And a uh, bunch of studies have looked at this. You've probably seen some of them. And uh, 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 these studies are showing 60 to 90% of opportunities are actually completely missed. Um, this is our, this was my version of a doctor when I went into medical school. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys have seen this. This is a, a, a Rockwell. Um, he's listening to the girl's doll and hopefully there are no heart sounds there. Um, so he doesn't really have to listen to the doll, but this is the way that we originally were thinking about medicine, right? Is, is, is a doctor that actually wants to do the right thing, wants to be there with his patient and wants to develop that relationship of trust and respect so that then when he puts his stethoscope on the little girl, he's going to actually have somebody who's okay with that because he's already listened to the doll. 
Have you guys ever seen this picture? This is a picture that was published in JAMA a few years ago, and I just want to walk you through it. This is current healthcare. Um, this is uh, drawn by a child. Uh, this is still better artistic uh, skill than what I have. What you see is on the left is the doctor. And the doctor is facing the patient and family or facing away from, facing the computer. The, the, the doctor is facing the computer, typing his or her note while the family is kind of sitting there waiting uh, you know, for, for the physician to respond to something. This is, this is you know, from the eyes of a child. This is the way that doctors, this doctor was seen by this child. And it's not a pejorative comment. This is just fact. I mean, we all know that there are so many pressures that uh, we are forced sometimes to be documenting at the same time as we're seeing patients. Um, how unfortunate that we have gone from the Rockwell painting to this. Uh, this is the way, in fact, that we're seeing. And uh, what I'm proposing here is a bit of a revolution. The healthcare system is perfectly designed to achieve the results it's achieving. The result that it's achieving is this picture of a physician who is doing what they're being told to do, clicking all of the clicks. But um, I would challenge us to try to be that physician on the bottom sometimes too. Yeah, I was going to say, Jeff, I, as someone who works with undergraduate medical students a lot, I feel like it's there. And we recruit these people and then we send them out. And I think it's actually pretty easy. And even being busy, it's, it doesn't necessarily take a long time to show a little bit of compassion to families. It's just that there's no or very few models for our trainees a lot of times. So, you know, even if you do have to type sometimes really paying attention when they're talking ahead of time, like they don't necessarily see this modeled in the clinical practice. And I think we're training doctors to be exactly like we are, <laughs> which is, and when 74%, you know, th those interactions at Hopkins were in all likelihood witnessed by trainees um, in multitude. Thank you for that. I, I, I totally agree. Those of us who went into this, went into this with all of the right reasons and with all of the right ideas, right? And so what we do as residents, fellows, and attendings is we train it out of them and, and, and we take it away from them. And uh, the, the revolution needs to be that we as fellows, as attendings, as residents, we need to actually cultivate this in an intentional fashion. We have to actually think about it and know that we're gonna be modeled. And so, yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And, I, and I, thank you for, I, I thank you for that comment because I do think, and I feel strongly that the vast majority of us have gone into this because we care and because we actually want to alleviate suffering and yet, we, we get really torn and we have uh, people that are training us who may not be uh, uh, as, as, uh, as facile with these sorts of techniques, which I'm gonna be sharing a little bit. So why do we miss these uh, opportunities? I mean, uh, because as we said, this is something that we all got into this, re the, uh, uh, this, this healthcare system for. Sometimes it's, I don't see it. So the way that I was trained is when I'm taking a history, I am understanding the chest pain 
onset and duration and location and alleviating factors and aggravating factors and radiation, right? And I'm asking all of those questions and that's the way that I was trained. But did I ever first say, boy, I'm really sorry that you're having that chest pain. That's not something that I was trained to do, but it's something that I started doing intentionally because again, bringing the human back to healthcare is going to be super important for us and for our patients. I don't know how. Um, this is something, you know, some of us are a little bit less touchy feeling than others. Um, that's totally fine. There is a skill set to this. It can be acquired. We're going to talk a little bit about that. It's not overly onerous. So if you don't know how, then you can acquire the skill set. And I would argue that it's important. I don't have time. So uh, Catherine actually alluded to this, and so will I. I would make the argument that you do. And I don't believe it really matters. Um, there is more and more emerging evidence. Uh, again, are these, uh, are these trials with kind of double-blind placebo control? Not necessarily, but, but there are some pretty well-run studies that, that would actually say that it matters, and it actually matters quite a bit. So do we have time to provide and cultivate compassion? Uh, the answer is clearly yes, that um, it doesn't take a huge, deep and, deep and meaningful relationship and a deep and meaningful conversation for the patient and family to feel like we care and are with them. And so this is something that was published over 20 years ago that said that essentially it took a half a minute. It took a half a minute to have some sort of a compassionate interchange between the patient, or between the, the provider and physician and the patient. Um, the other kind of thing that emanated from this study is this idea of time affluence, which is really interesting. So um, we all feel a time deficit uh, in our day-to-day -day because there's just really not enough time in a day and we're seeing more and more patients. But if we're able to be with somebody, even for just a minute or two, we have this feeling of time affluence and that actually we are okay with the time that we're providing for this patient. So I, again, would encourage you to create some empirical evidence for that uh, in your next encounters. So what does it look like? I'll script it for you uh, um, so that you have an idea about how to operationalize it. But again, uh, what I would, again, really stress is that if you read something or if you've just memorized something, it's not necessarily something that's going to be all that meaningful. Uh, it really does have to come from somewhere within you. But some of the things that I will say sometimes is your mom has a def your mom has a difficult journey ahead. I tend not to say that that she's fighting for her life or she's in a fight. I I, I prefer to use the term terminology journey, and that I've stolen from the palliative folks. We're going to do everything we can to get her through, knowing that the odds are against her. While she's my patient, I see her as my mom. Um, I do feel that. And uh, what I'll tell you is uh, that in and of itself is a hugely meaningful thing that they hear uh, um, anecdotally. That's just something that I feel comfortable saying. Uh, um, again, you can choose your own sort of strategy. But, you know, when I say, you know, when he's here, he's my brother. 
and, and frankly, it's because I want to do everything that I can for them. And so it's, it's coming from the right place. Uh, our team will keep you informed with any changes. I know this is a tough time for you. And I want to emphasize we're in this together. So again, am I alleviating suffering by virtue of saying that? The answer is yes. This is compassion. Um, we don't have to be able to say, we're going to save your mom. But we do have to say, we care about saving your mom. And we care about you too. I will be with you every step of the way. And I'm so sorry that your mom is going through this. And I think that these are small snippets that I promise you are not going to take that long to say. If you feel them, then please steal them. Uh, but think of things that you can say to your patients and families that would be meaningful from you, that would demonstrate and cultivate the compassion that you do feel for them. So what are the results? So I'll just cut to the chase here and tell you what the results are from the book and from all of the literature. I'll go into a couple of operational sorts of ideas about the ways that you can cultivate this, and then hopefully we can have a conversation about it. So um, there's, there's evidence to support that there's psychological health benefits for, for us and for them. There's decreased feelings associated with burnout and, and potentially the ability to uh, actually prevent it altogether. There is improved compliance from patients. There's improved healthcare quality, better revenue, and lower costs. I mean, it's really something that the bean counters are going to love. Um, and patients, providers, and hospitals do better when, when patients feel that somebody cares. Uh, that's the bottom line. So the patient experience clearly will go up, even if there's an untoward outcome. And I've seen that time and time again. Uh, I, you know, I get letters. Uh, Interestingly, in the ICU, I get more letters from folks whose loved one has passed away and, and who are just blown away by the compassion that they feel, um, which is interesting because, again, it's not always about the outcome, even though clearly we're outcome focused. It's also about the journey and about how we can be there with them. And also just remember that for us, you know, it's a Tuesday and for them, it's the worst day of their lives. And so if we can continue to level set for ourselves that we know that we're joking around with the nursing staff, but as we're laughing in the hallway, it feels different inside the room. And so understanding that, that we're on stage and understanding that every interaction that we have, if you've ever been on the other side of the bed, what you know is that you're waiting for the doctor to come. And then the doctor comes and all time ceases. You might be on the phone trying to call somebody else. You might try to record it. The doctor comes, they're there for five minutes and then they leave and they have no idea what was said. And there's no other interaction for the rest of the day. So um, that second sort of look, that second sort of uh, interaction. So saying, hey, Please write everything down that you're going to want to have answered. I know that this is a lot. I'm going to come and see you at the end of, at the, end of the afternoon. Uh, and if you're still here, happy to have another conversation or if you want me to just give you a buzz. Um, the over-communication, particularly in the first three days of hospitalization, is huge. And you guys all know this kind of anecdotally. But what I can tell you is if, if things start going south and you already have that therapeutic relationship with the family, holy cow, what a big difference that is than if you're making that first phone call three, four days into the hospital stay and things aren't going well. 
The DEI lens is interesting as well. So um, I, I wanted to put this in because for some of us, it's easier to connect with some patients than others, um, for, with some families than others. And I think that being mindful of that is incredibly important and powerful because we do have unnamed and unrecognized biases. And so if we can do everything that we can do to find things that, uh, that, that we can focus on with, with a patient and family, even if they're extraordinarily dissimilar to us, even if you feel like there's nothing that kind of draws you to them, there is something that draws you to them. And so uh, they are under your care and what a privilege it is to be under your care and what a privilege for you and what a privilege for them. So um, I, would just, uh, I would just submit to you that uh, um, this actually goes a long way uh, if we have this ability to decrease health inequities. It doesn't fix everything, but it can help substantially. So a couple of slides about skill acquisition. So how do we do this and how can we be a little bit more skilled at this? So I would say, first, listen. And I know that sounds stupid, but uh, you guys have all heard that, that the average physician will uh, interrupt a patient or family within the first 18 seconds, right? You, th th this is something that we do. Uh, um, and the study has, has, has been done. And if we don't interrupt, they might talk for another five to eight seconds. So it's, it's somewhere in the 20s to low 30s. So if we interrupt them, we're actually doing ourselves and them a disservice. And start with tell me statements. This is what I like to do because I don't wanna start with closed ended questions, anything that can be answered with a yes or no. And so the thing that I try to do is if I start with tell me, then I know it's not a yes or no. So a lot of us try to use nonverbal cues. Um, uh, I've played games with trainees about what that means. And uh, not all of us can read nonverbal cues well, and, and not everybody is, is e equivalent in terms of what they do. So uh, what I would tell you is not only are the nonverbal cues important, but actually the utilization of verbal empathy statements is crucial. It's crucial. And something that I was not skilled at you know, six or seven years ago, and I've developed that skill. And I will name three empathy statements for you, uh, and you can use them and abuse them as you'd like. One empathy statement is a reflection empathy statement. Looking at them, putting a mirror to them and saying, you look concerned. Interestingly, that is, that's something, it's fascinating. Um, I, uh, I, I, it feels weird when you first start utilizing these sorts of, of statements. Um, the nice part about this is number one, they actually work. And then number two is sometimes I'm misreading the patient or family and then they'll correct me. But it's not like I've, I've been thrown out of the room because I've misread them. But, it, but it, it, it involves a conversation then. So instead of, you know, you look, you look concerned. No, actually I'm not concerned at all. I'm angry or I'm confused or whatever. And so then that actually will engender kind of a frank conversation between us. That's a reflection statement. A legitimation statement others in your situation would feel the same. That's an easy one for us in the ICU, but really anywhere is that uh, um, uh, uh, acknowledging that they're in a tough spot 
is, is, is a form of empathy. And the final one that I have for you is an exploration statement saying, well, what do you think is going on? Tell me more about what your thought process into is to what we have been saying. Um, those are three sorts of empathy statements that can at least start you off on this pathway. I hesitate to say this because um, uh, uh, to our, our earlier discussion, sometimes you can get canceled. But I think that if you can read the room and you feel comfortable, uh, um, touch when appropriate is super duper powerful. And actually, uh, two days ago, um, I, I had a wife of a patient who just died and uh, we hugged and it was amazing. I mean, like it was really like this sort of, you know, this balloon of sort of all of this emotion in the air that then just kind of, you know, dissipated and became sort of a strong therapeutic alliance between us. Um, so I would say that obviously this is something that we have to be careful about, but uh, when appropriate, I think it's a really meaningful thing. And so don't throw baby out with the bathwater. Be human. So um, uh, there are schools of thought that say, don't talk about yourself. This is all about the patient and their experience. And then there are times that actually you can be human. Uh, um, one of my other sorts of things that I like to do is I, I, I like to ask, how have you guys been able to stay married all this time? You've been married for 45 years. What's the secret? Trying to understand, well, you know, I've got, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to be on 19 years of marriage. You know, we, we're able to kind of like communicate and connect as human beings, which then goes a long way to development of that therapeutic relationship that is actually doesn't take that long to develop. <laughs> and those of us in the critical care arena know that we have to develop that therapeutic relationship over minutes. Primary care providers sometimes have the luxury of days, weeks, months, years. We really have to do that over minutes. And so uh, we have to develop the skill set. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to, to develop those sorts of relationships. And that's what drives burnout and also drives worse care. And then this is the thing that I would kind of really tell you is that leaning in is incredibly important and powerful. Uh, it is not easy and it's not something that we tend to want to do. Um, when somebody's at end of life, uh, we don't necessarily want to lean in. Uh, we've kind of done everything that we can do and we move on, but being with them and suffering with them and leaning in even for a few moments uh, is ex is exceptional. What a privilege that, that we're that we're there for that and that we have the ability to make that just a little bit better. There are lots of other ways that we can develop the skill set. This is my last slide. Um, and so uh, Stanford actually has the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. Um, there are others that do this, but I like this one just because this is actually focusing on us in healthcare. There's, there's um, additional research that's going on. They have coursework that they, that they do. And they have this guy, uh, Jim Doty. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of him or know him. He wrote this book, Into the Magic Shop. Uh, um, that kind of, he's a neurosurgeon that really talks about leaning into compassion and understanding what mindfulness is and all. Uh, it, it's a tremendous book and I would recommend it, but he's, he's one of the guys that heads this up. Um, 
I think that uh, the thought that I wanna kind of end with is going back to my original statement that healthcare needs a revolution. We need to blow it up and it's on us. We can blame administrators, our chief medical officers. We can blame Medicare and Medicaid. We can blame insurance companies. There's a lot of blame to go around, uh, but at the end of the day, we're the ones that are with our patients and we're the ones that actually are uh, in a great place to actually push this agenda forward. And so my, uh, my very strong opinion and my very strong urging for you is to take this information to start the revolution in Baltimore, to cultivate compassion within yourself, for yourself, for your staff members, for your colleagues, and for your patients and families. Because what a gift it is to be a doctor. What a gift it is to be able to do what we do. And if we can lean on that a little bit, it allows us to be a little bit more present with our patients and families. And with that, uh, I'd love to stop and hear your thoughts. Thank you.